I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Writer's Routine, where this week we're chatting to Barnaby Jameson QC. Barnaby is one of the UK's leading counter-terrorist lawyers, and in amongst his time working in some huge, notorious cases, he's written his debut novel. It's called Codename Madeline. Now, we talk about the right and left side of the brain and how this helps his writing become distanced from his work as a lawyer. Also, we talk about how he tells stories in court. And how he grows at doing that and makes himself better. And you can hear simply why he decided, in amongst being very busy, to write a book in the first place. I mean, one of the things about crime, which is, or any case, is, is that huge amounts of work, you know, go into a case and then it's finished and then that's it. It's over. And there's a sort of degree, if you like, of, of anti, anti-climax. And so I think that I had always wanted as somebody that's very interested in words and in stories and in history to write words that weren't going to disappear on the water. And so I sort of decided that, you know, one of the ways of doing that was was actually to to write a book which you know, I hope will will stand the, the, the test of time. There is more with Barnaby Jameson in this week's writer's routine. Yes. Welcome along to the show. This is Writer's Routine. My name's Dan Simpson. It's the place where we take a look inside an author's working day to see how they get stuff done, to see how they juggle work and family and and everything else that comes upon you with the art of taking a story from your head and getting it on the page. Uh, Now, something interesting, quite exciting, I think, to start. If you are headed to bloody Scotland in a month or so's time, one of the UK's biggest crime writing festivals, uh, all being well, I will see you there. I'm due to be chairing two sessions across the weekend. Uh, There is one about UK authors, British-based authors, writing novels about America. And another one is a general writing discussion with uh, Janice Hallett, and Joanne Harris, the writer of The Appeal and the author of Chocolat and many others. And both have appeared on the show before and will be doing a chat, having a chat, doing a session uh, live on stage at Bloody Scotland. Now, as everything, this is due to happen, but you know how these things are. But I've got it in my diary and I've booked the hotels and all the stuff. So all being well, I will be at Bloody Scotland mid-September. Uh, I hope to see you there. If, if you are there, 
if you're seeing a few sessions, if you come and see one of the ones I'm chairing, make sure you stop and say hello. Uh, now this week, back to the real business of the podcast, we are with Barnaby Jameson QC. Barnaby is one of the UK's leading counter-terrorist lawyers, making the case for the country against the defendant, an alleged terrorist. He's worked on some of the most notorious cases in the field, including bombings and plots to assassinate MPs. Uh, just a very quick search of Barnaby online will bring up some of his most famous cases, some incredibly recent as well. Now, before we really get into the chat, I just want to say one of the things I really enjoy about doing this show uh, is chatting to all sorts of different authors, writing all sorts of different stuff in all sorts of different circumstances. Some are just starting, some have published lots, some are writing in between working, looking after the family and studying, some are fortunate enough to escape to the coast or abroad and dedicate whole time to writing. It takes all sorts, and I think that's really important, to um, see how you can work no matter what's going on, really. Now, Barnaby is fortunate enough to be a lawyer and to almost be freelance and take the cases that he wants. And that means uh, he can afford to write in between uh, in some pretty nice places, you've got to say. Uh, you can hear more about that in the show. We talk about his new book, Codename Madeline, which is inspired by the story of poor Inayat Khan, who is an agent working behind enemy lines. We chat about how he gets better at telling stories in court. Also how he tends to write a curated stream of consciousness. You can hear where he writes, how he writes, how he meticulously researches to make sure that his stuff is spot on. Now there is a bit of lawyer chat in this, mainly because it's so far away from what I do. Uh, I'm, I'm just incredibly interested in it and I hope you will be too. I think there are lots of writing tips in there, s stuff that will be useful to your work and about what's going on. So let's get into it then with what Barnaby sees around him in the place where he sits down to write. I have a fairly plain working environment and so I've got a, uh, I've got a desktop computer and behind that is literally a white wall and I try and keep my desk relatively clear. I've got, um, uh, what have I got? I've got a light, a fan, and I've got various sort of reference books. Um, but I once went to Hemingway's um, house in Cuba, where he had this fantastic desk that looked over the Cuban landscape. But where he wrote was actually behind his library door. And he had a, um, uh, a typewriter set up on a shelf where he stood looking at a white wall. And so I've slightly taken a leaf out of Hemingway's book. And so I look beyond my computer at a white wall. Now, writing by nature is, you know, it's a creative pursuit that you need inspiration for. Why are you eschewing all inspiration by just staring at a blank wall? Um, I think because uh, the mind, uh, or at least my mind, is, um, is such a, a sort of uh, fertile landscape that I think if I was... Um, staring or, or looking at a, at, at a very sort of complex um, visual world while trying to write, I, I actually think that would slightly interfere with my thought process. Um, I suppose the inspiration comes when I, when I close my eyes, but when I open them, I actually like to see quite simple shapes and, and colors and so that my mind feels calm. I mean, obviously a lot of imagination goes into your writing, but when you come to write the words, I think it's a bit like when you switch 
when you turn up Google online, one of the benefits of Google is that it's that blank page behind it, if, if you know what I mean. So I, I quite like the Google, the Google approach, if that makes sense. What, aside from creative things around you, is there anything that maybe helps you plot and helps you plan? Your work as a lawyer must be quite organised. How much does that translate to what you create? Uh, that's um, a very good question. I think that um, one of the areas, I think one of the pitfalls that you might fall into as a lawyer is um, – when you're doing a case, you're you're engaging more the right hand side of your of your brain, and so a lot of it is is quite organisational, uh, and um, uh, it's it's right hand brain type work. And when you're working creatively, it's it's more the left hand side of your brain. And I think that if you use the lawyer side of your brain too much in your writing, it's going to end up, you know, like a like a legal document. Uh, and so, you know, one has to put that in a sense to one side and engage the left-hand side of your of your brain. But you can't go, in a sense, too far into the left-hand side because otherwise there'd be no structure. And so I think as a lawyer, as a barrister, I, I'm tr- looking for that sweet spot between um, creativity and structure. And I think that if you've got too much of one thing, it, it tilts it. And so I'm, I'm always kind of looking for the balance. But at the same time, I don't know what sort of work your friend does, but I um, my practice is quite niche because I tend to prosecute in counter-terrorist cases or in, in terrorist cases. And one of the privileges of that type of work is that it allows you to open a case, for example, in front of a jury that might take two or three days. And that is, in some respects, a bit like telling a story. And I think some of the more effective prosecutors are people that are able to engage the jury by telling them a, a story that is, you know, well-paced and interesting. And it's quite easy to lose a jury if, um, you know, if, if you bore them within an inch of their lives. And so I suppose the, uh, the writerly element of, of my work actually does come out in my speeches big opening speeches and then at the end of the case you have to do a, a closing speech and again that could take up to half a day even even a day um, so I think the short answer to your question is as a barrister you and, and a writer you don't want to be too organized but you don't want to be too disorganized um, either can I can we just talk about that the storytelling aspect of your job that you just mentioned it's slightly away from where we'll get to in the chat but it's high stakes. So I work in podcasting and I'm on the radio and I, you know, tell stories for a little bit and then I'll have feedback with my boss. And and, and normally um, what that comes down to is, are people going to switch off? Are people going to carry on listening to my podcast? It's fairly low stakes there. Whereas you, if you're not getting that right, if you're not hooking in the jury, if you're not telling them this story in a, in an engaging way, then something may or may not happen with your trial that could be, I guess, life and death. So how are you learning to get better at that? Who is guiding you through being better at telling a story? Well, that's, a, that's if I may say so, a very uh, pertinent question. Um, I'll bring my son into this um, in a moment. 
it's a it's a question that could have quite a long answer. But what I will say is this: uh, some of your work as a as a lawyer is quite is quite prescribed, in the sense that. Um, uh, it might be a certain document that has a template and you can simply replicate the template. But in the criminal sphere, uh, sphere which I'm in, it actually allows counsel a lot more latitude. And so as a criminal uh, barrister, if you're opening uh, a case to a jury, no matter what it's about, um, there is no set way of doing it. I mean, there are certain things that you normally um, touch on at the end of a of an opening speech, you know, you might remind the jury that the prosecution um, has to make the jury sure of, of, of guilt and that um, that's a high standard. But that really, I mean, and, you know, showing them the indictment and perhaps referring to the, to the law or at least part of the law, those things you probably do have to do. But those would make up maybe, I don't know, a 20th or a 30th of your speech. And so the rest of it is basically up to you. And so you have an awful lot of um, editorial freedom in how you do your speeches. And in terms of the checks and balances, what happens with me and in most major um, prosecutions is that I will do a first draft that will go to my junior who will then look it over. And then it'll go to the officers in the case for their input because those are the people that have investigated the case. And then it'll go from to those who actually instruct me, that is to say, the, the counterterrorism people at, um, at the CPS. And so I, in a sense, do the first draft and then a number of other individuals feed into that. And then it probably goes through three or four drafts until it's, it's ready. And then it's served on the other side and served on the, on the court. And I think if I've got a reputation for anything at the bar, it's being able to um, give speeches that grab grab the audience, uh, grab the jury from the first sentence. Just one more question on specific lawyering, which I imagine probably isn't the word, but I'm curious. This is not necessarily pertinent to writing, but I'm intrigued. I know that becoming a lawyer is tough and then becoming a barrister on top of that is even tougher. Now, you have niched yourself down into the world of counter-terrorism. And when I was at school, I, I don't remember that being a, an option for my teachers being, hey, if you want to be the, U the UK's leading counter-terrorist lawyer, here's what you need to do. Uh, how have you kind of navigated towards doing this? Is this specific area something that you were always interested in or were they just opportunities that came to you along the way? Again, that's a very perceptive question. Um, within, I think, what happens as a barrister because you're self-employed, somebody once said to me that your career as a barrister is actually what you make it. And if you're, I suppose to some extent, you're, you're, you're running with any work that you can get your hands on. But there are instances where you might be sitting, as I was about 15 years ago, maybe slightly more, looking at the horizon and thinking what areas of law are going to become prominent in the next, you know, in, in the short and the medium term. And I think after 9-11, I had a real inkling that that was the beginning of, of a new phase of, of, of geopolitics and that the law of terrorism was going to come into sharp relief. And what was quite interesting is, is that those who've been doing terrorist cases, um, they tended to be the ones that did all the old IRA cases, but they sort of petered out at the end of the last century. And then there was a kind of lull 
of about five years when there was really no terrorist cases. And then suddenly, after 9-11 and the sort of early rise of, of Islamic terrorism around 2005 or so, there was the London bombing, I don't remember, in, in um, 2021, well, 7-7 was, was the one. And my first terrorist case, actually, was the 21-7 case that followed the 7-7 case. That was my first ever terrorism case. And I think I saw something happening on the horizon. And then around that time, I wrote a very short book, A Practitioner's Guide to, to Terrorist Cases. Um, and that was then presented at quite a big symposium. And even if you've written a, a short book, it does kind of put you slightly on the on the map as being somebody that, that knows what they're talking about, rightly or wrongly. Um, and then I was in my first terrorist case, as I've said, in 2007. And then it really pick, picked up speed around 2014-15 with the rise of Islamic State. And then I've had a, you know, I've had almost um, the best part of a decade prosecuting in, in very high profile Islamic terrorist cases, which is known sometimes as, as black jihad. But I've also been doing in the last five years neo-Nazi terrorist cases, which is known as white jihad. Um, and they are, you know, equally extremist, equally um, difficult, but you're just dealing with two different types of or stripes of terrorism. And I think I'm right in saying that I'm, I'm one of the only prosecutors at the bar that's actually done both. So I've got a, a foot in both camps. Um, but again, a short answer to your question, um, terrorism law isn't really a, a sort of module as such, but it does come within criminal law. And I was always, you know, quite interested in anything with a, a geopolitical side to it. Uh, anything to do with, um, you know, national security is bound to attract, you know, top top people on the investigation side um, and, and the like. And so um, it's a field that I, I sort of gravitated towards. Um, and it's one that, you know, has kept me busy for the best part of a decade. I'm a barrister and not a solicitor. And it's the solicitors tend to be the ones that have their time sort of reduced into chunks and they, they bill sort of by the minute. A barrister's life is completely different. And so what we do is we tend to take away what may be, you know, a month or two months just to, to plan the case and then to do the case. And then it's quite possible after three months of very intense work, you then might disappear off on holiday for a month. Um, and so we are court bound, not office bound. And so the other thing is that barristers are, are self-employed. And so I can find myself at times of incredible intensity. Um, and I can also find myself having stretches of time between cases where I have deliberately kept my diary open so that I can I can have a break. And so my writing has fallen into some very sort of, um, there's no typical day in the life. Um, it, if I'm in court and preparing a terrorist case, I've probably got no, no time for writing at all. But, you know, towards the end of the case, once the summing up is done, it may be that I can snatch a bit of time when I'm at court and then if I decide to go off to Greece or something to elope with my kite board, I may then have like a month where I'm in between cases and then I can write very intensively. And so in terms of my writing as a barrister, it's either feast or famine. 
I'm snatching tiny little little bite-sized chunks of, of writing if I can at quiet times during a case, but that's probably you know very rare. And then I will use the time if if I've got time between cases, that's when I, I write much much more intensively. And so in this particular instance, I didn't really start writing it properly until it seems a long way ago, but until probably 2016 is when I started to write it properly. Um, and it's taken that much time because it's so difficult to fit in a routine. And so when I was first asked to go on writer's routine, the first thing I said was, I actually don't have a routine. Um, so that might, in a sense, t t torpedo me talking about writer's routine. So my routine is, is kind of is chaos theory. But what's happened is that when I wrote the book and then I, it came to the getting it to, to, to market stage and it went out to, you know, the people that look at it, publishers and agents, I realized, of course, that I'd actually written about four books. And so it's been chopped up and is now part of a, of a series. And so now that I've done book one, I'm hoping that my routine while I, you know, do books two, three, four and, uh, and so on. My, that my routine is going to be a little bit more settled. And the last thing I'd say um, about routine is that if I'm, let's say, in Greece, which is where I spend my, my holidays, if I do have a gap between cases where I can impose a routine, what I try and do is get up early. It doesn't always work. And write in the mornings. Um and then, you know, go and do something else uh, in, in the afternoons. Um, but what suits me is the, is the possibility of being near the sea. So you can wake up, have a swim, um, write in the mornings, kind of pretend a little bit that you're Ian Fleming in GoldenEye, Jamaica, or wherever it is, and then stop and then, you know, have lunch and then spend the afternoon doing your own thing. And then maybe go back and do a bit, a bit of editing around sort of five or six in the evening before you know, before the evening starts, you know, that to me is a wonderful holiday writing routine. I wish I could have that every day, but for reasons that you've um, stated, it's not possible. <laughs> well, let's just, I, I guess, in, in, in the dream day then, if you were to start work early in the morning after a nice swim in, is it, is it the Med down there or the Aegean anyway? It's the Aegean. Um, it's, I mean, it's sort of, yeah. It, I, I go to an island which is called Patmos, which is part of the Dodecades Islands. The biggest is Rhodes. And the other one is Kos, but Patmos is a very sort of interesting holy island that's mentioned in the Bible, and it's uh, it's a writer's dream. It's um, you know it's surrounded by glassy uh, water, and you know the water in in Greece is still very clear. So on a, on a sort of dreamy day, I suppose you know I would get up early, you know maybe seven seven thirty, go go for a, a proper swim across the bay, come back. Um, maybe write a few words before breakfast, have breakfast, and then really use the morning to, to, to write. And I know there are some writers, they give themselves sort of targets. But I think if you can, you know, turn out 1500 words uh, in a morning, which is not impossible, or even a 1000 plus, I think you're doing pretty well. Um, and of course, you know, if you do that over a month, you know, that's a third of a book. Uh, how do you know what you're due to be writing that day. Is there a, a grand plan for the novel, a scene-by-scene scene breakdown, or a, a kind of, a, I guess I want to be here or so in three hours' time. Let's just 
let's see how I get on. Um, yes, I think that um, I, what I do, and I'm sure you know, it's in common with with other writers, is that I do I do have a a chapter plan, and I've got a, a pretty rough idea where I'm going in each chapter. And of course, at the end of the book, you then start to sort of shuffle those those pieces around. Um, I write historical fiction, and so um, you can actually see where you're going um, chronologically. And so my book starts in 1914, and it ends in 1944. And so that 30-year um, uh, period actually gives you a sort of if you like, it gives you a framework in, in which to, to work. And so you can see yourself moving, you know, through the First World War into the interwar period and then into the into the Second World War. And so I think the answer is I, I do try and write to a, a chapter plan. I've got a rough idea where I'm going. I think Neil Gaiman described writing as, as driving at night with one headlight on. Um, and I think, you know, that, that sums it up for me. You've got one headlight and then it may be that um, the other headlight comes on and you can see much more clearly where you're going. Um, sometimes both lights go off together and you can't see where you are. But I think the answer is you, you have a rough idea where you're trying to get to. And sometimes, you know, you might go on to, you know, slight sidetracks. Um, and, you know, that's not necessarily a, a, a bad thing. Um the most important thing for me, and I'm sure this is true for other writers, is that it's the writing is 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 one thing, but it's it's how it looks when it's been you've let it rest and then you come back to it, you know, the following day or, or the following week. That's the acid test, I think, of whether you've whether you've written written well or or, or not. Uh, it, it, just to use that Neil Gaiman, uh, I guess, metaphor of of driving. If, if this were if if you're plot were to be a road trip for instance you know uh, you're leaving at a you want to get to b uh, how often are, are things in your story coming clear through the windscreen to you at what point do you know what's next is it just a, a moment of inspiration or are you kind of hopefully thinking a little bit in advance yeah well i think um with my uh, particular book and and it might help if i if i sort of explain a, a little bit more about it because i'm in this slightly um, uneasy area of, of uh, historical fiction where I've taken, uh, for the most part, uh, individuals that actually did exist in real life. Uh, but I have uh, been true to, their, true to their, their lives, but their stories, you know, have been fictionalized. And so, you know, if, you're, if you pick, you know, a character from, you know, history, nobody knows exactly what they said on any particular day. You just have to be true to, in terms of dialogue, how they might have spoken. And so in terms of answering your question, what I've done, and I think it's a device that's used by William Boyd, is to take um, various lives and set them going chronologically, and they will intertwine as the, well, they start off as separate threads and then they are twined together as the story um, continues. And so I'm acutely aware, having sort of read the various biographies of what happens, the, the major milestones in these people's lives. And I'm also acutely aware of what happens historically. And so to that extent, 
I've got history in a sense has, has given me my my plot um, because it's based on it's based on real events. Um, and what I've done as the narrator and as the storyteller is to take those real lives and real events and turn it into you know what I hope is engaging engaging fiction. On days when the words aren't coming as easy as easily as they could do, uh, some authors go for a walk. Others have a drop of coffee. Others are a very specific music track to tr- try and grease the wheels. It, what what have you learned helps you write when maybe the going is tough? Uh, again, good question. I am a Piscean, and um, as I said, I spend a lot of time in Greece. And so for me, if, if the words aren't coming, I, I find the most helpful thing to do is, is to dive into the Aegean Sea and, and, and just to, to swim. I find swimming, you know, it, it, it's the most uh, amazing uh, way, I think, of, of engaging yourself physically. But it's something that you can also think while you're swimming. I don't know whether you've heard of a book called The Swimmer as Hero. or it's, Sorry, it's, it's called Haunts of the Black Masseur. The Swimmer as Hero. The author died, uh, I think, this year or last year. And it's the most brilliant uh, book about swimming through the ages. Um, and I've always equated the the writing process with, uh, with the swimming process. So that's probably my thing. When I'm in London, you know, obviously I can, I can swim in swimming pools. Um, but I suppose, I, ideally, my, my cure is, is the Aegean Sea, described um, by Homer as the, uh, as the wine dark sea. And it is actually very dark. So it's the wine dark sea is, is, my, is my cure for the block. You mentioned that you're a Piscean there. Um, am I reading too much into it? Was, was that a, a slightly flippant comment? And, and it's fine if, if you do kind of put some faith in this. It's just if you were to, it, it's interesting because, you know, your work as a barrister pretty much has to be in fact and in logic and, you know, a, a way of telling that. And the idea that you were to follow life of uh, your life due to um, star signs and things is quite interesting to me. How much do you follow that principle? Yeah, I, I suppose it's, I, I, I don't think it was meant to be uh, flippant, but but um, I'm just tr- trying to think. Um, I think there may be, uh, I suspect with, with star signs, there's as much truth in it as you as you want to, to give it. But whether it's my star sign or just how I am in the world, I've always been very drawn to water. And I was brought up, you know, for a lot of my childhood on a, on a Greek island. And when I'm not swimming, I don't know whether you've come across this sport. I, I kite surf, which means surfing with a, with a kite. I've just come back from, from doing that in Kos. Um, and so I would say that, you know, water has always been quite an important part of my life, whether that's been because I'm a, a, a Piscean or whether that is actually nothing to do with it, uh, I'm not sure. But I think that, um, you know, we come ultimately from, as creatures, we come from the sea. And obviously, when we're just stating we're in a sort of amniotic ocean. Um, and so for me, I'm, I'm somebody that's got a great affinity with the sea and it, it helps with my with my writing. I can't put it any any higher than that, but I am technically a Piscean, born on the twenty seventh of February. Now, you, you uh, your your work is 
well, I guess it can be quite high profile. We've spoken about how you're probably at the top of your game and it's serious business and you've published now historical fiction. I guess the question is when your time is is quite precious and you need to fit in swimming and kite surfing and being around your family, why dedicate so much time to writing a novel? Why choose to storytell when it's not necessarily something that you absolutely needed to do? Well, I think I'd pick up on on your last comment, which is uh, what I absolutely needed to do. Um, I, um, I think as a person, I'm quite driven in whichever direction it is, whether it's work or, or, or you know, swimming or whatever it is. And one of the um, aspects of being a, a, a barrister, and it was described, I think, quite eloquently by somebody as saying that we, we write our, our words are written on the water, which means that once, um, you know, I might spend uh, two weeks on an opening speech, but once it's given and the case is, has been resolved, it simply disappears. It, it goes into the it goes into the ether. I mean, I will have a private record of, of my speech, and I've got a library of, of, if you like, my speeches. But once the speech has been given, the jury's heard it. Um, the case is resolved. I mean, one of the things about crime, which is, or any case, is is that huge amounts of work, you know, go into a case and then it's finished and then that's it. It's over. And there's a sort of degree, if you like, of, of anti, anti-climax. And so I think that I had always wanted, as somebody that's very interested in words and in stories and in history, to write words that weren't going to disappear on the water. And so I sort of decided that, you know, one of the ways of doing that was was actually to to write a book, which, you know, I hope will will stand the, the, the test of time. And also looking at the various individuals in the uh, the book that I've written, I found their stories so utterly compelling. Um, I mean, the story of, of the heroine is now getting a little bit more traction, but I found the stories of, of, the, of, of the people and the sacrifices they made and, you know, all of that thing, it's just incredibly moving. And uh, I thought that these were stories that actually deserved um, to be told. But at the same time, you know, being a writer does not necessarily make you very popular with, uh, with those that are, are close uh, around you. And I think that's one of the the great um, conundrums of, of, of writing is, is that you obviously need to be extremely single-minded. And, and how do you um, balance that against, you know, your obligations to your family? And um, the answer is I haven't made myself very popular, um, but I'm, 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 I'm working to redeem myself. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. 
Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. We'll be back with more from Barnaby Jameson in just a sec. Uh, very quickly popping up to say if you're enjoying the show, if you've learned anything along the way that has helped you tell your stories, you can pledge to support the show at Patreon. Become a backer, patreon.com forward slash writer's routine. For that, you get our unending thanks. There is merch, there is bonus content, there is a way for your book to sponsor this show too. So if you've published something recently, if you've not had the fanfare, I know that marketing is so hard for a debut author. Uh, out there in publishing if you would like a, a plug for thousands of very dedicated writers and readers in this here writing community i can do that for you become a backer patreon.com forward slash writers routine it doesn't take a lot just a couple of dollars a month really helps us keep going it helps us keep bringing you these chats with the best authors around all different types as often as possible and i know things are tight right now so if you can spare anything I promise it will go an extremely long way and I'm eternally grateful. You can become a backer and help us out at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Let's get back to it then with Barnaby Jameson QC chatting about his debut novel, Codename Madeline. We talk about why he writes a curated stream of consciousness. Uh, also, I'm fascinated by the political landscape right now. I, I just wonder, is it more tumultuous than it's ever been? More fractious? especially here in the UK and out in the West. I wonder. And Barnaby knows a lot about this, so I thought it was a wise time to pick his brain. And we get back into it, chatting about how he got the idea for Codename Madeline. What was the uh, the first kernel of the plot? I think the first time I started to look into this uh, uh, era of history was quite a long time ago now. It was probably about 12 uh, years ago. And... Um, I'd, I'd studied history at university, and I'd, I'd always been qu quite quite interested in history. Um, but the sort of Second World War and that particular uh, period, you know, to me, it was always kind of war films. I never sort of looked at it seriously in terms of a sort of historical um, analysis. And then I started to read more up about it. And there's a there's a slight family um, history to this because it ties up actually with my son. But I spent some of the time piecing together my grandfather's war. And he had had a very interesting war because he was out in Ethiopia and Aden, which is now Yemen, and also down in, in South Africa. And he, it turned out, was an RAF officer who was also an intelligence officer, and you know, it's all been sort of declassified now. But he was plainly doing quite a lot of work for certain clandestine organizations, and one of them is understood to have been the special operations executive um, that were sending agents into mainly into Europe, but into other other places besides. And SOE is a sort of writer's dream because you you literally you couldn't believe 
the material that you're getting because you go back to 1940 when the chips are down, Britain was very close to being invaded, as you know, and Churchill just said, right, I want you to fling together a sort of department that can go out and set Europe ablaze. I mean, those were his, that was the brief. And this organization was set up very quickly um, using all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life who were then trained to become clandestine agents who would then carry out some of the most dangerous sabotage and espionage operations in occupied Europe. The main theater was France, occupied Paris, and also Lyon, and down in the south, but you know other occupied countries as well, including Holland and Denmark. And so what you had is, is people from everyday life suddenly having to get trained up and to lead an extraordinarily dangerous life um, as a spy in an occupied country. And of course, as a spy, you've got no legal protection at all. And so um, you're, you're outside the Geneva Convention. And what that means is that if you're captured, you're liable to be tortured and shot. I mean, that's the but the bottom line. And SOE itself, if I give you some idea of the people that it recruited, it recruited um, barristers, um, actors, um, academics, uh, chess masters, burglars, um, forgers, um, people from, you know, literally all walks of life, housewives, you know, mothers. And it was the first um, of the Second World War departments that sent women into frontline service as as combatants. And the idea was that in an occupied city, women would stand out less than men. A woman pushing a pram, you know, might not be as as obvious as, as somebody else. I mean, that was the theory. And I looked, you know, at, at a number of these agents, but the one that, that just stood out as being one of the most sort of unusual people I've ever come across ever was this woman codenamed Madeline, because she was almost the sort of antithesis of what you might imagine as a sort of, as a spy going into occupied Europe. Um, she was the daughter of a mystic. Uh, she was a Sufi. She was a musician, a harpist, and a pianist. She was a a writer of children's stories, and she was a student of of child psychology. And so she was this rather dreamy uh, character, um, a pacifist, and obviously just an an incredibly sort of sweet person in the, you know, in the best sense. And it was her sort of calling then to, uh, in the Second World War, she first of all joined the the WAF, the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, and was then recruited into SOE. And so you've then got the, if you like, the second part of her life, where she, this harpist, pacifist, um, mystic's daughter, is walking around Paris with a a liberator pistol, um, a cyanide capsule in case she's captured by the Gestapo, and a suitcase with a Mark II radio transmitter concealed and if anybody searches your suitcase you know that that is that is the end you'd be taken for immediate interrogation and so it was just sort of piecing together her story both internally and and externally and she um stepped up to the plate when when you know when the chips were down and she she went to, to occupied paris 
in circumstances of probably the most intense danger you can imagine. And, and the only other thing I was going to add to that little bit is that as a wireless operator, which is what she was, you were under increased uh, pressure and danger because every time you'd um, set up to broadcast, and that was a very dangerous, um, as soon as you were on air, your signals could be tracked. And you would uh, know that within 20 minutes, people could catch up with you. So every time you, you did a broadcast, you had to set a stopwatch and come off air after 20 minutes, otherwise you could be captured. And you just imagine moving around occupied Paris, you can't stay in the same place for more than one night. And every time you go on air, your signal can be traced. And everybody in um, uh, occupied Paris needed um, a wireless transmitter. There were very few uh, radio transmitters because they had to be fluent in Morse code and it's a very technical business. And so she was transmitting on behalf of any number of different um, resistance groups. And so you, you just imagine the sort of hot summer of 1943 being just pursued, you know, uh, silently by the Gestapo, um, going around, as I've said, with your pistol, your uh, transmitter and your cyanide pill, just in case. And that struck me as a story that required wider recognition, because this was all done from the shadows. Um, it's not, you know, like a soldier whose life can be, you know, celebrated in in, in song. These were the hidden um the hidden heroes about whom after the war we heard almost nothing uh, because it was all so secret and now it's it's coming out in more detail. And what's amazing is that it is coming out in more detail and you, you, you know, you, you, you've got to distill 30 years worth of someone's life in the history of the SOE into this, I don't know, 400 page novel. So before you even get to fictionalising it, you have to do so much research. Where did you start with that? I know that you did research things fairly meticulously. How did you begin that process? I started to read just very uh, extensively. And uh, SOE has now become uh, sort of more documented than it was. And there is a, a historian, the late MRD Foote, who's written an official um, history of SOE, which is, I suppose, it's the sort of the main book on the subject. But there are, you know, probably now half a dozen good books on SOE. And then I fuse that with reading quite extensive biographies of certain of the characters. Um, and so one of them is, is codenamed uh, Madeline in the book. Um, there's also somebody called Leo Marx, who was SOE's cryptographer. And he wrote a very interesting book called Between Silk and Cyanide. And I don't know as a bookman if, if the address um, 48 Charing Cross Road means anything, but there used to be an antiquarian bookshop at 48 Charing Cross Road, and that then was turned into a book that was turned into a play. Anyway, he was of the, uh, the antiquarian book dynasty, and he was a young chess prodigy um, who then went on to become SOE's cryptographer. And the other aspect of, of SOE that was so extraordinary is that um, in order to put um, combatants or, or spies into the field and, and enable them to encrypt their messages going in and coming out, the worry was that if they had any type of, of, of 
book on them that they could be caught and that would be evidence that they were a spy. So they sent spies into occupied um, Europe with what they call poem codes. So they'd have a poem that they would memorize and then they would use certain um, words from the poem to encrypt and encrypt their messages, which would then be decrypted in uh, London. But it meant that SOE became a, a, a very sort of, if you like, poetic uh, place because every agent had to choose their own poem. And um, in the case of a spy called Violet Sabo, um, Leo Marx, one of the characters in the book, actually wrote or gave her a poem that he'd written himself. He was a cryptographer poet. And I'll just give you the, the, the name of the poem. It's, it's called um, The Life That I Have. It's about 12 lines, and The Life That I Have is, is just an extraordinary poem, and it became one of the most famous of, of, of the Second World War. Um, and so I read um, Marx's book, Between Silk and Cyanide, which is about SOE, but it's also about him. Uh, and then I, I read quite sort of deeply into um, other characters you know, within SOE. And then the other strand to this is that in the book, um, there is also a look at SOE from the other side of the fence, as it were, and that is the the head of of German military intelligence, uh, the the Abwehr, and the head of that was somebody called Admiral um, Canaris, and I read quite extensively into his life because he was, if you like, SOE's nemesis, um, the people that were trying to, uh, to to get to get the agents, or at least some of them, and then it turns out that Canaris was a highly complex individual who was on his own sort of personal and religious journey at first a supporter of Hitler, um, but not at the end. Um, and so without giving t too much away, there's an extraordinary journey that, that he makes as well. Um, and just talking of journeys, I read the sort of journeys of the lives of various agents. I read the journey of, of SOE. Um, and SOE was pretty well closed down after the war. Um, they literally, they shut it down and, and its, um, you know, its duties were taken over by, by MI6. Um, but the book itself is, is a journey through history and, and it is a journey that follows the journeys of the particular lives of the individuals um, that, that, that are the, 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 the protagonists. So there's plenty of journeys in, in the book. I think um, some writers, as you, as you say, they go for the, the stream of consciousness approach. I don't tend to do that. I tend to write quite um, carefully. Or I, I don't sort of mean that critically of people that write a stream of consciousness. But rather than sort of spew out all my thoughts and, and then start to sort of pick out uh, the, you know, the wheat from the, from the chaff, I tend to write um, a little bit like I imagine Canaletto. Um, I mean, Canaletto's sort of paintings are so um, detailed, and I'm sure he probably started off with a you know with a sketch. But I think the way that I write, it looks a little bit like the finished product, um, and quite often doesn't need a huge amount of editing. I mean, that's not always the case, um, I, and. You know, saying that out loud doesn't necessarily sound like it's it's necessarily the best approach, but I tend, I would say, to write in such a way um, that it's not a million miles from what will end up with with the editor. So quite carefully and quite slowly, and 
you know, um, I suppose in a in a way, if you imagine that you know Canaletto was was painting the sort of the finished bit of his painting every sort of inch. Um, that's how I, I tend to write as opposed to stream of consciousness and then sort of go back through it. Now, I wonder if I can pick your brain about a question that I, I tend to ask and discuss with authors when they're on the show. Um, and that is that there are quite a high amount of, I guess, notable authors who are lawyers or rather the other way around, as in it is a profession that does lead people to write novels. And I'm... I've chatted about this with many different people and whether because perhaps one could argue it's not some form of being a lawyer. It's not up to your own creativity as much as other work. So this is almost an outlet for you. Uh, What do you think about that view of things? Well, I think think the the fundamentals of, of law, whatever area you're in, is that, and this may sound a bit sort of um, glib, but it's true. Is is that law is is built on words? Uh, the laws themselves in the statute are, are are built on words. The laws in the cases are built on words. You know, the judgments of of the court of appeal or the supreme court, those are those are built on words. Um, it's it's not as if you've got. You know, a sort of physical uh, object in a factory. Law is word-based right the way through, and even in my terrorist cases, um, you know, they've been described as as a war of words. And in a sense, that's exactly what a a, a case is, and particularly in front of a of a jury, um, it is in a sense a war of words. The prosecution, you know is on one side of the battlefield, the defense is on another side of the battlefield. The two parties will exchange quite a lot of written words between them. And then in the trial itself, it is run on words in, in oral speeches, in cross-examination, submissions to the judge. Um, so everything to do with law is words, um, whether it's in writing, um, in written submissions, or whether it's in, in speeches or, or in oral submissions. And so in a sense, that that is the um, the milieu that, that we are, are are used to, and so it's probably not a, a million miles away from any you know um, lawyer that uses words to think that you know uh, uh, a profession that is probably quite close to that is going to be writing. Um, I mean, some lawyers also, or some barristers are also into acting because that's you know word based as well. But I think it's because it's it's a it's a it's probably the most word based of of the uh, of the professions certainly that I can that I can think of, um, and so that's why I, th- I think you know if I look at the at the members of, of my inn of court, they include um, I was at Mid- I'm at Middle Temple they include Dickens, um, and they include Thackeray as well as you know very learned you know people that write about the law but. There is a long tradition, as you know, of, of, of barristers who who are also uh, writers. Now, I'd just like to pick your brains on. I know that you you know a lot about the the rise of neo Nazism, and I was just I have only been alive thirty years, and I, the, at least the last ten of those have been quite tumultuous politically. Uh, I, I wondered is is this something alien, or is or is this 
is this kind of repeated throughout history, a time that is very turbulent with a lot of different uh, cultures and uh, groups that are, are rising from both the right and the left in order to do immense harm to another? Is, I'm just wondering, is, is, this, is this a new thing or is it kind of always been the case? Well, I mean, it's a fascinating, it's a fascinating um, inquiry. And I work with some of the sort of most high profile sort of experts in this field, just from a, um, a sort of geo, uh, well, political scientists. Um, I think there are a number of factors at play. Um, one is that as a society, both here in Europe and in the States, um, and partly due to social media, we are much more polarized than we than we ever used to be. And I think social media has quite a lot of uh, quite a lot of blame. I think is attached to, to to social media. And so, if you look at the Trump administration in the states, I don't think you could find a country that's been as polarized since the American Civil War. And so, politically, you know, we are more. Um, more polarized than ever before. I also think that there's an issue with uh, the time, the timings of, of everything, because the Second World War, as, as you know, ended in 1945. And I think in the generations, probably the two generations that followed uh, the Second World War, you know, there was still a great deal of, of numbness and shock about what had happened. And so the prospect of people standing up and saying, you know, I follow Hitler, I'm a Nazi and all the rest of it would have been almost sort of unthinkable in the probably two or three decades after the war. But then, you know, you get further generations then come along. And the people that are probably in their sort of um, teens and their 20s now that are experimenting with um, neo-Nazi idealism, I don't think that they've got a real handle on the reality. And so people, you know, like Hitler and the other architects of the um, Nazi regime, they're like memes to them. They're like cartoons. And quite often, you know, they'll take um, pictures from the Second World War and they'll, you know, from some of the atrocities that we know happened, and they'll annotate them and they'll turn them into, into jokes and cartoons. And so I think in the minds of a lot of kids, um, they see this as a cartoon and they don't, I don't think, really, really understand and fully appreciate, you know, what they're talking about. The other thing or the other aspect to this is legal, which I think is quite interesting, which is that in Germany and Austria, and I think also Israel, um, there are very strict laws on, on Holocaust denial. And so um, in Austria and Germany, you know, you'd be arrested if you, if you deny the Holocaust. And in Austria and Germany, you can also be arrested and prosecuted for having either Nazi or Nazi-themed memorabilia. Um, but in the UK and in the US, there are no laws on Holocaust denial. And so a lot of the people that I prosecute, they tend to engage in, in very extreme forms of, of not just Holocaust denial, but seeking uh, a second a second Holocaust, because our laws are are very liberal, um, and you know some would argue that we should have laws on on Holocaust denial, but we don't. And one of the byproducts of that, of course, is is that um, in the UK 
it becomes a bit of a breeding ground because nobody's breaking the law by denying the Holocaust. And so people can, you know, have talks about it. They can have forums. They can exchange ideas on the Internet. That would be illegal in Germany, but it's not illegal in the UK and in, in the US. And then the last um, comment I'd make on this um, is that what the political scientists say is that in the 20 or 30 years after the war, people just didn't talk about it because they were still sort of numb. But he was saying that in certain parts of, of Eastern Europe, uh, particularly, it never really went away. It, it sort of was buried, but it, it was never dead, so to speak. And then what's happened, you know, with the internet and the distance of time is that these old sort of skeletons have come, come out of the cupboard, basically. And that is it for Barnaby Jameson on the show. Thank you so much. I mean, he's very busy, so I really appreciate the time and the kind words uh, during the interview as well. That new book is Codename Madeline, and it's out right now. Uh, next week, we're chatting to Lexi Elliott, all about her new novel, How to Kill Your Best Friend. In the meantime, you can support to help us out at patreon.com forward slash writers routine. Give us a follow on Twitter. We are at writers pod. We are on Instagram writers routine and on TikTok as well. Uh, and I've got these very fancy new videos. They are worth your time, I would say. So make sure you follow us across all socials. Um, you can get in touch with the show using the contact form at writersroutine.com too. Uh, fingers crossed. I will see you at bloody Scotland. I'm sharing two sessions. I think one on the Saturday, one on the Sunday. Mm, I reckon if you're there, come say hello. Uh, and we'll go for a beer or something like that. Uh, and I will see you next week with Lexi Elliott about how to kill your best friend. Until then, bye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.